I was nowhere near death, but I was sick. It was 1990. I was a college student sharing a house with a friend. Lori lived upstairs and paid most of the rent. She was not a student and had a real job. I inhabited a finished room in the basement, for which I paid $80 a month. It was a sweet deal. I'd gone to class that morning, but felt a bug coming on all day, getting worse as each hour passed. By the time my final class ended, I was running a fever and shiver-sweating profusely. I found my way home, down to Tylenols, wrapped myself in blankets, and sank into the welcoming comfort of my bed. I was asleep in seconds. This was around 4 p.m. A little after 5, Lori came home from work. Her dog, ecstatic to see her, woke me with a wild tap dance on the kitchen floor above me. I found myself sitting on the edge of the bed. I stood and took three long strides towards the stairway. I felt strange. Every inch of my body, from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, was vibrating as if a strong electric current was passing through me. It didn't hurt, exactly, but it was intensely uncomfortable. It was similar to the feeling when you bump your funny bone hard, but the feeling was everywhere. To access the stairs, I had to open a door. I reached for the knob, and my hand went right through it. That's when I saw that my hand, and I quickly realized all of me, was made of vibrating fire. I was the shape of my body. I had hands and everything, but my skin was a corsication of fiery reds and yellows. I have to show myself to Lori, I thought. I knew I was out of body. I wanted verification. What would she see if I appeared before her? my ghoulies and my moth people welcome to noctivigant the show about the strange paranormal otherworldly and the people who write books about it my name is nick and i am joined by the spiritually confused jay and rory wicks yeah that is that is accurate finally something i'm more confused about than my gender (laughs) on this show we are going to discuss dissect and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature so settle in buckle up and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of noctivigant We're here. We have finally come out of the shadow of Streber. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, 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 I really enjoyed those books. Uh, I was very happy to be reading something, anything else, just because after a while um, of reading any one author over and over again, it will turn your brain to pudding. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. And uh, boy, howdy, did we pick something that was different than uh, Streber this time around. You know, you say that, but there's a lot of ideas in here that... I meant in terms of uh, writing style. Oh, yes, absolutely. Speaking of which, uh, the book we are covering today is Could All Religions Be True by Jack Preston King. Uh, definitely more of a uh, spiritualism book than it mm. is about the paranormal. But that said, as we've learned over the course of the show, those topics are often very much interrelated. And what would you call God but a supernatural entity? True that. 
I just feel like you don't get into aliens and cryptids unless you're trying to fill some sort of primal wound in your soul. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's pretty fair. Either that or you saw one and then and then it ruined your life because now you can't stop thinking about it and you must uncover the mystery. And God damn it, these these are clues. Okay, and has those random cryptid sightings ever happened to a mentally stable person with a good childhood? Me? I'm touche. Relatively stable. You yeah. had a wonderful childhood. I had a great childhood. You had a wonderful childhood. One of these things. Oh, I is see. Not like I see. The You're other. implying that the first thing isn't true, <laughs> that I am not, in fact, mentally stable. And all I can say to that is okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> Every statement I make towards you is with the utmost love and affection. Please remember that. So, uh, this is a lot like most of King's books, very short. Uh, it was a quick read. And, uh, I mean, I honestly kind of saw it as, so for the record, this is not a one topic book. This is a number of essays in here and, uh, all regarding the topic of basically conflicts between various world religions, worldviews, uh, and how to rectify the various religious beliefs without saying that any of them are just wrong. Uh, although he does branch off into some other topics such as the nature of God, death, uh, the nature of spirituality, and really I mean, because the book is so short, it didn't get too deep into any of them. But at the same time, that didn't seem like it was the point of the book. Yeah. Really, it was more. Here are some ideas. Now you think on them. What do you think? Yeah, it was. It, it seemed very intentionally thought provoking. Yeah, like here's the groundwork and some sources uh, of of where the information was, where it got Jack thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And then, like, ended with a question. Like, you know, w what do you think about this? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. You know. So what did you guys think of the book overall? I yeah. liked it. I liked it a lot. Me too. I, uh, I resonated with a lot, of, uh, a lot of aspects of his journey, mm -hmm. of that constantly moving from tradition to tradition, being like, this will be the one that fixes me. And yep. every single time, <laughs> it's like, oh, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> oh, I did not. <laughs> I, I had a very similar, similar journey in that sense. I've tried many a different faith and, and, and practice and a lot of them the same as Jack, you know? So that was, that was interesting and, and relatable. And I think a lot of people, especially those that have felt, um, ostracized by like the Christian community are going to resonate with a lot of what Jack went through here. Absolutely. Um, and, and beyond that, I mean, he, he writes in a very conversational, yeah. easy to grasp way. He has a, he has a, he has a talent for taking very complex issues and making them simple enough that you can at least begin to grapple with them. Yeah. Now, granted, none of these uh, issues he talks about are actually simple because when you start thinking about them, you go crazy and then you lay awake at night and your wife is like, hey, go to sleep. You have work in the morning. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I need to find God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need sleep. I need answers. Exactly. I, I can sleep when I'm dead and found God. Well, actually, I think the implication in some of this book is that, no, we do not sleep when we're dead. We're in a state of constant awakeness. Oh, no, I want sleep. <laughs> maybe, maybe then I won't need the sleep. And that's the difference. Yeah, maybe. All right. Are we ready to get into the book? Yeah, let's do it. The year was 1980. The Iranian hostage crisis was lighting up television screens across the country. Cocaine was on its way to becoming the narcotic of choice for a generation, and the satanic panic was just beginning its infernal grumblings. And it was in this environment that we find then 16-year-old and self-avowed sci-fi atheist Jack Preston King. 
Long a good Methodist boy, King's days were filled with youth group sessions, choir practice, and of course, church every Sunday. Which is why his mother was so flabbergasted when young King proudly informed her that he would not be attending church anymore, kicking off a year of terse conversations, culminating in King's moment in the sun, when his mother's probing questions allowed him to unveil the supposedly bulletproof logic that had led him to abandon the very church he had once hoped to lead as a preacher. Quote, I was pretty sure I was the first person in the whole history of the world to have successfully solved the religious problem, and I was ready to preach my newfound atheism from the rooftops. I was the smartest kid on earth. Yay, me! <laughs> and what was his grand theory to put to bed humanity's 100,000-year-long search for God? Simply that, because contradictions existed between major world religions, they couldn't all be presenting an accurate view of the universe. Some of them must be wrong, and if any of them were wrong, it was likely that they all were. A conclusion his mother rejected, simply citing that, well, yes, other religions contradicted King's Christian upbringing, that was just because Christianity was the only one that got it right. An assertion which did little to shake young King's certainty in his own spiritual genius. Years later, now an adult, King was seeing a therapist who helped him identify some of the cognitive pitfalls that had directly led to his crumbling marriage. And there was no greater offender than his tendency towards dichotomous thinking, meaning that he tended to see the world in terms of black and white, on or off, true or not true. Everything existed at an extreme, and because of that, his thinking lacked the necessary nuance to handle complicated issues. In King's world, there was a right way to do things, his way, and a wrong way, everyone else's. A type of thinking which acted as a proverbial hand grenade when thrown into the social dynamic of his marriage. Quote, as a teenager, I was applying to long ages of world religion and the experiences of billions of real human believers of every faith the same dichotomous thinking that I would later come to recognize as a disordered, marriage-killing plague in my life. But he worked hard and thankfully came out from under the shadow of this tendency. Just not fast enough to salvage his first marriage. Years passed and later enjoying a lecture from Professor David K. Johnson, from the Great Courses lecture series, which will be often cited throughout this book, he was stunned to hear his 16-year-old logic being regurgitated by a well-respected academic. Talking about the philosophical problem of religious diversity, Johnson explained that when we look at the course of human religious history, it becomes impossible to not see the obvious contradictions between different faith systems. As a simple example, the Hindu belief in reincarnation appears to run directly against the Christian idea of heaven. And even within Christianity itself, disagreements exist regarding the ultimate nature of the afterlife. Quote, in Professor Johnson's estimation, even if we admit for the sake of argument that we can't know everything, and therefore we can never conclusively rule out the possibility of some divine reality out there that the mystical experiences reveal to people, however imperfectly, there remains no way for us to determine which, if any, of those revelations are true. According to Johnson, the simplest answer was to conclude that if we cannot determine which experience or religion is true, we should assume they must all be false. Now, on the surface, this reasoning seems somewhat sound, but as we have often learned on our show, logic, when founded on false precepts, can take you to some pretty wrong conclusions. And the price philosophers like Johnson pay for their thought crimes is that they become totally estranged from the billions of religious believers in the world, and in turn relegate a critical element of human existence to the same trash can many throw the concept of little green men and our beloved Sasquatch. As King writes, quote, A human life, fully lived, from the earliest days of our species, 
has always and everywhere included belief in and interaction with the supernatural. Long before recorded history, we painted our visions on cave walls, ingested psychotropic plants, and buried our dead with ceremonial provisions for the afterlife. Egyptian polytheism lasted more than 3,000 years. Europe was thoroughly pagan for thousands of years before it was gradually Christianized between the 4th and 15th centuries. It took a long time. Many Hindus believe their faith predates human origins. It is historically traceable to at least 500 BCE, and the roots of Chinese Taoism go back to at least 400 BCE. For thousands of years before Muhammad, today's Islamic world was predominantly polytheistic. In other words, being human and being religious has, for most of our history, gone hand in hand, and the act of seeking spiritual truths appears to be core to the human experience. Just as his my way or the highway line of thought was in its own way abusive, any philosophy which completely discounts the lived experiences of billions of humans, both those of the past and today, is equally abusive, because it doesn't solve the problem of religious diversity, but simply says that it is a question not worth answering which is exactly what King hopes to do. Over the next two essays, King breaks down a number of possible ways in which we may be able to, at least at the philosophical level, solve the problem of religious diversity, a solution which he believes must exclude both the dogmatic faith of the religious, who tend to discount all faiths but their own, and the negative solutions forwarded by atheists that all religion and spirituality is self-delusion at best and self-abuse at worst. The first possible answer comes direct from one of King's college teachers. A retired Lutheran minister who later became a Jungian analyst, this professor argued in favor of an allegorical holy mountain as a potential solution to the problem of religious diversity. Quote, He saw all of humanity climbing the same holy mountain. It's a big enough mountain that you have to have ascended quite a distance to even become aware that you're on a mountain with more than one side, that you're climbing something other than a flat vertical plane. At the top of the mountain is the great truth that is calling us all toward it. Religions in this metaphor are like maps that show you the way to the top of the mountain. But as every religion has a map and begins from different spots at the base of the mountain, they don't seem to be heading towards the same peak. And it is at that peak that the solution to the apparent contradictions between major religions will be found, and not a moment sooner. Once we're at the summit, we will see that all these different religions are facets of a single structure. And what we saw as contradictions are merely because each religion was mapping out a different route. For example, King cites a story from the New Testament in which a group of Sadducees, members of a Jewish sect active during the time of Christ, tested Jesus by asking, should a woman be married and widowed seven times on earth, who her husband would be when she reached heaven? In response, Jesus presumably smirked and replied that that was not how heaven worked. The answer to their question could not be given because they fundamentally did not understand and could not understand the view from the summit. In other words, divine reality is likely far greater and more complex than anything we have managed to figure out, and any apparent contradictions have more to do with our perceptual framework. However, it is not until the next essay, One More Way All Religions Could Be True, the king spells out how he believes spirituality may actually work. And for this explanation, we must return to a small artifact from King's childhood, a 28-page booklet written by a man named Peter Simon titled Quantum Jump, Answer to the UFO Mystery. I I feel like the title has to be read like that. (laughs) (laughs) In the booklet, Simon introduced a concept that has stuck with King throughout his life, the instructor. 
Simon argued that the strange, often contradictory elements seen in the UFO phenomenon are due to the fact that all such anomalous incidents are the creation of a singular entity, a pervasive God-mind who is manifesting what we believe to be true about reality. Unlike John Keel's ultra-terrestrials, the instructor does not create these manifestations just to mess with us, but rather to give us the chance to confront the absurdity of our own ideas and beliefs in the hopes that we will be able to move past them and slowly develop a clearer picture of actual reality. Quote, I'll show you what your brain has created. I'll show you what the brains of those you honor and follow have created. I'll show you part of the childish and insane universe that might result if one starts with a fallacy and overlays it with science and technology. I'll control your mind or your body or your reality if that's what you believe or desire. And then I'll ask you, does it make sense? Is it consistent? Do you like it? No? What are your conclusions? Who or what do you call for help? Can you think of alternatives? Where do we go from here? In this way, the instructor challenges us to directly face manifestations of our own beliefs with the hope that we will learn to discard them as the limited, shallow interpretations of the universe, which they probably are. King takes this idea and explores it further via a concept he learned during his short foray into the Wiccan faith, the egregore. Now, this is a term we have discussed before on the show, specifically regarding the living thought forms that some believe are created in magical workings. However, for this discussion, King refers exclusively to the Wiccan understanding of the term, quoting noted Wiccan personality, Lady Mav Rhea, quote, Imagine that divinity is an infinite, incomprehensible jewel with an infinite number of facets through which the energy of the divine is refracted in innumerable ways. Meaning basically that God, or the divine, is fractal, and it is only through these fractal forms that it can directly speak to us, via the masks we have made for it based off our need. For example, we create fertility gods to act as the face of the divine we speak to when seeking a good crop or a healthy child. This creation then becomes the mask the divine wears to service that need, and some masks, most notably the ancient pantheons we all learned about in grade school, become so defined that they adopt the powers, personalities, and quirks we expect of them. As such, to the Wiccan faith, egregores are, quote, a human projection into the divine that, over time, becomes real. It is a kind of living, answered prayer. A concept which takes on new dimensions when assessed in light of the 700-verse Hindu scripture poem, I am going to butcher this, the Bhagavad Gita, which details a conversation between a warrior named Arjuna and the godhead of the Hindu faith, Krishna, during which Krishna reveals to the warrior his true form. Quote, My dead Arjuna, O son of Pertha, behold now my opulences, hundreds of thousands of varied divine forms, multicolored like the sea. And, quote, Whatever you wish to see can be seen all at once in this body. This universal form can be all you now desire, as well as whatever you may desire in the future. Everything is here completely. Krishna went on to say that whoever worships him in whatever way they wish will be entertained in that way. Much like the Wiccan concept of the divine, the Hindu godhead is seen to contain within it endless forms suited to the needs of those who wish to communicate with it. The apparent contradictions between faiths is merely the result of the godhead providing different things to different people based off their stated need. The point being that it doesn't matter what we believe in, just that we have belief, and if Simon's instructor theory is correct, that we perpetually test and examine those beliefs to see if they hold water. With that alone, we can talk to God, at least the part of it we choose to see. Which brings us to our first discussion question. <gasps> Woo! 
So I want to focus specifically on King's conception of gods as manifestations of a singular divine source. Could the same be said about the UFO phenomenon and other manifestations of paranormality? Are they, as the Simon booklet suggested, extensions of some sort of godhead? Or do you see paranormal phenomenon as separate from the divine? I think, I guess in my, my personal view, if that's what we're going with here. I mean, all of this book, all the questions are going to be personal view. Because it's is, you know, there, there's no hard facts here. Zero. Yeah. yeah, no, never. So I think, I mean, I, I, I think that there's probably some crossover. And by that, I mean, I think that I, I, I think that the same could be said about the UFO phenomenon. I think it, it, it could be. It is an option, I guess. <laughs> um, because it, like, thinking back to Passport to Magonia, mm -hmm. there are similarities between some alien stories that we've seen or that we've read and heard about and then stories of different deities and gods mm -hmm. uh, and, and interactions with fair, uh, with the fey folk. I believe we've, we've mentioned before that uh, of all the gods, the Morrigan sounds like a straight-up alien. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I, I, I think it's possible, and I think you could make the argument that in John Keel's view, that is essentially exactly what's happening, right? Like, it is coming from some singular source. Whether or not that's divine is likely debatable. And to John Keel, I'm sure he'd say no. Uh, divine, no. Trickster, asshole, yes. Um, but I, 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 I don't. That's the part with Keel that I struggle with mm -hmm. is the full trickster part because it, I, I don't think that it's all just like that. You know, whatever. Anyway, there, there has to be some honest or yeah. good portions of it. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's, I, th I think it's possible. And I think, I mean, just kind of diving a little bit into this, I think that in my own personal, my own personal opinion, I think in a way that's probably accurate, right? I think, I think you can be both a singular divine source and have fractured elements of it. Okay. And, and by that, I mean, I think ultimately that we are individually each uh, uh, a a piece of maybe that same divine source like we are aspects of the same thing almost like a mushroom colony yeah ki kind of right like we are you know uh, you know we all ultimately when we die we become one with the universe again in my opinion uh, where i'm thinking right now this week because it changes day to day right um we are, you know, when we die, we become one with the universe. And that oneness is likely that divine, that singular divine source, that consciousness, that the, the, the universe, the many bazillion names that we have for the, it. The, the thing. The thing. The thing we've come to that is a thing. Yeah, the thing that we think is, is a thing. <laughs> God, we're good with words. Ah, uh, words are good. Um, so... I totally lost my train of thought there too. That it's fine. Uh, I, I I think that we are also like maybe a deity or a god or something. We are just another at another fractured element of that same divine source. So yeah, I think that the UFO phenomenon and maybe Bigfoot and maybe the Loch Ness monster 
and Mothman are all potentially manifestations of that same thing. I mean, but by that logic, everything is. Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, I kind of got the image in my head of, uh, you know, you take a ball pin hammer and you hit a piece of glass, you get the giant spider web crack. The shards that are closer to the, pe- the location of impact might be like the gods. Right. Out, go out a little bit further from the moment of impact. You might get things like uh, fey or, or jinn. And you go a little further out, you might get aliens and or ghosts or cryptids. And then there we are somewhere uh, nestled between us, somewhere between aliens and slugs. There we are. And maybe the reason why we think that people like Jesus and other, you know, and Muhammad and all these other like prophet like people, maybe the reason why we see them as so much more is because in that fractured element, they're a little closer to the center. You know, they're, they're where when they were born, they started a little closer to there. They, you know, uh, we portrayed these, I mean, like, Thinking about Celtic lore and mythology, so many of the gods and deities that we uh, worshipped throughout time, there's, I don't want to say evidence because we don't know, and, you know, uh, that culture was verbal all the way up until the Christian monks. Everything was passed down through the bards, uh, through uh, oral history and everything. So we don't know for sure, but we're, we're some people, some historians are quite sure that there were real people that these were based off of, that these eventual gods were based off of, like uh, like Finn McCool, they think might have been and likely was a real person. Uh, Taliesin, they think might have been and very well could have uh, and very likely may have been a real person. Same with Merlin and all these other people. Um, they think that they very well could have been real people, and now we see them as deities and gods and, and these historic figures, you know? And maybe the reason why we see them like that is because they were a little bit closer to, I really like that example that you gave to that center of that, that fracture, man, I really like that actually. Yeah. Although now it does make me think like, what if the whole point of existence is to eventually like get everything back to that center, you know, fix the fracture, but ultimately what the fracture is, is like God's hangover or something like God went on a bender a billion, billion, billion years ago. And this all of existence, all of reality is just the morning hangover. I mean, maybe uh, shitty if true. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, what do you think? Ah, um, okay. Okay. So do I see the paranormal and the divine as separate? Not all of it. Um, I feel like there is a broad spectrum of running from mundane to divine. And I feel like uh, I here's the thing is. All of as you said, all of these questions are going to be personal opinion. So and I later we're probably going to be getting into the his idea of standing inside a myth versus outside of a myth. Yes. Um which I is probably my favorite concept from this book because that's literally just how I was taught to approach any religion that wasn't mine from an academic standpoint if they're just like no 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 when you're reading this stuff you believe it cuz that's the only way it's going to make sense. Um Yeah, we talked about that with Exo. Yeah. Um but yeah, um so with with the paranormal and whether it's part of the divine for me personally that comes down to what aspect of the paranormal do you want me to be referring to um because the 
you know, the the entity that I see sometimes that I believe helps me with my divination. Well, that's probably divine. Something probably sent her for reasons. And that's but, you know, you ask me about UFOs to me. No, those aren't divine Um, to draw on an earlier to draw on one of our first books from Peter Bibergall and the idea of the occult circuit. I'm sure to other people, to some other people, the UFO, UFOs and aliens are intrinsically divine, are their path up to the Godhead. To me, even though I know we don't like nuts and bolts, I look at a UFO, I see a lump of metal. There's nothing special inside it. That is not going to get me anywhere because it doesn't mean anything to me and I don't like it and I don't want it. So the occult circuit doesn't complete. So mm. it's not divine. You're it's not paranormal. standing within the myth of UFOs. I am not standing within the myth of UFOs. I do not wish to occupy that lens of reality. So they do not, they are not divine to me. You know, and I, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think I uh, feel very similarly to the both of you uh, on that regard, mostly in that I kind of tend towards thinking, well, most religions do, if you look back enough into our scripture and myths, uh, God or whatever the ultimate intelligence is, is everything. It is mm -hmm. in everything. And so, yeah, I mean, I, again, I go back to that uh, broken, broken glass analogy. I, and I, but that said, because we have kind of a sense of individuality and we can do shitty things, it stands to reason to me that. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense that aliens sometimes do shitty things, that cryptids sometimes do shitty things. They still have uh, their own will despite being part of a whole. Mm -hmm. Especially if, you know, like uh, we, when we were talking with Jenny Tyson, we asked her if she believed that like aliens were on the same spiritual path as us. And if that's the case, then it makes sense that they aren't divine. Mm -hmm. Right, because they are striving after the same thing, which may be that maybe the ultimate goal is that we're striving for our own divinity. Well, I mean, and also we talk when we talk about divinity or just the word divine. That's such a complicated word because what do you mean by divine? Right, like are we talking about only positive things? Are we talking about a a, a beneficial, benevolent entity, or are we talking about a conception of reality, or are we talking about everything that exists, has existed, and will exist? And depending on your interpretation of that, your entire view of this is going to be radically different mm. because it, even and that's the part, I guess, part of the uh, limitations of our language is words like that can mean every word can mean so many different things depending on what frame of reference you bring to it. Yeah. I'm just thinking about one time I, I watched a fascinating exchange between two people where someone uh, were, you know, a Native American person was attempting to politely explain why you why Wendigos basically they were trying to politely explain to a white Wiccan person, please do not work with Wendigo spirits. Um, those are sacred entities. Uh, they belong to us and you don't know what you're doing. And the white person got very defensive and is like, What do you mean the Wendigo is sacred? It's an evil thing that terrorized your people. And they're like, just because it's evil doesn't mean it's not sacred. You don't seem to understand what we mean by the word sacred. Mm. Yeah. And that was, and that made me sit back and think about like, is the devil sacred? And certain things like, oh God, he is. He would have like, to be. Yeah. By that definition, if it's like he is, he is sacred. He is an intrinsic part of the divine truth of Christian reality. Like he which already has a lot of its own unpacking to do with that. Yes, and but yeah, and 
I'm just thinking it's like just and to me personally, I guess at this point, divinity is is truth. What is what is the true form of reality? What is what what is beyond the curtain of of this crude matter that I occupy? Yeah, I like that. I like I, well, not, I mean, I like that mostly because I think me personally, uh, you know, I, I talk about this on the show all the time, uh, you know, entertain everything, believe nothing. I like to leave myself open to the question because I feel like that's living in the mystery is not only really fun. Uh, it allows you to entertain even the most wild of concepts long enough to explore them and see if there's anything worthwhile to take from them. Mm. Um, so I guess for me, um, while living in the mystery, that whole idea of, uh, was divine is truth. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me because ultimately that's what I'm looking for with no expectation of ever finding it. Right. And again, for me, that's also just partially me drawing from, I, you know, Buddhist and Hindu ideas of like, that is, that is what, again, it's like, we're looking for truth because truth is secession of suffering. Truth is an exit from the cycle. And that is, that to me fits so much better than just calling the divine God, because as again, it's like I've always found that limiting because God, God is a different thing to every person that you ask. And the I, so yeah, that that feels more complete to me of what truth truth is divinity. Truth is the only divinity. Interesting. I like that. I like. I just like that. What you just said. Truth is the only divinity. I like that. I also feel like it being like a, a sick album name. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of the genre though. Uh, I could see that as a metal. Yeah, like a like a like a like a heart. Nah, like an '80s metal band. I could see that. I don't. I'm not so much in like the more modern metal scene. Bitter like, ex Christian power metal from the '80s. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I dig can it. See. I can smell the hairspray already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are we ready for the next section? Yeah, yes. let's do it. All right. Now, before we begin, quick disclaimer. From here, King's book takes the reader on a pretty eclectic tour of essays addressing various elements of human spirituality in relation to the question of religious diversity. In order to make for an easier listening experience, the following essays have been rearranged into sections that I feel discuss similar concepts. So please remember that the order of the essays presented here may not reflect what you'll find in the book. While the core discussion in this book centers around the problem of religious diversity and the ubiquity of the human spiritual experience, which we'll discuss more fully in later sections, he does also include a couple of meditations on the nature of death and the possible afterlife we may encounter once we are loosed from this mortal coil. Beginning with essay number five, What Survives Death?, King makes the argument that the afterlife envisioned by most religious adherents is not only unsupported by their scripture, but reveals a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the human soul, especially here in the Western world. As he recounts, King attended a service at the Assemblies of God Church near his home, after which he engaged the preacher in a brief chat about the afterlife. To his shock and amusement, the preacher enthusiastically described heaven thusly, quote, In heaven, the sun will always shine. We'll lounge on white sand beaches, drinking fruit juice and laughing joyfully. And then we'll go to golden shopping malls, where the shelves are always filled with every kind of wonder, and everything is free! It's capitalism, but wrong! (laughs) This vision of heaven indicated to him that she had fallen into the same cognitive trap that many religious adherents do. 
being that she believed she'd arrive in the afterlife basically unchanged from the person she was while alive, with the same desires, tastes, dreams, and personality. Her vision of eternal consumerism wasn't a reflection of actual paradise, but rather what she believed would make her happy. But, King explains, many world religions agree that the version of us that reaches the afterlife may not bear much resemblance to the person we were while here on Earth. Rather, he argues, the person we conceive of as the I in our minds is, ultimately, the part of ourselves that is most vulnerable to influence from our environment. It is shaped by how good our parents were, the challenges we faced, the lessons we learned, jobs we held, and people we associated with, all of which shapes the personality. So why would we assume that this part of us, the one that is the most malleable and adaptable to change, is the eternal element of our being? He then introduces the Hindu idea of the Atman, or the soul, which translates most directly to self or breath, and is the part of us that is the part of the universal Brahman, God, universal principle, or perennial philosophy, or what have you. It is the true part of us, the nugget that sits at the center of the personality we construct over the course of our lives. Citing Professor Mark Berkson's lecture, Cultural Literacy for Religion, Everything a Well-Educated Person Should Know, quote, When you think of being conscious, you normally think of being conscious of something, conscious of something you see or taste or hear. If your Atman is pure subject, then it cannot be object. So anything that can be an object of your consciousness cannot be it. Since you can be conscious of your body, it can't be your body. You can also be conscious of your thoughts, your emotions, your sensations. Thus, none of these is your true self, the pure subject. Take away everything that can be an object of consciousness and what is left. Consciousness itself. This is your true identity, and it is changeless, deathless, immortal. We can be conscious of our personality. We can believe ourselves to be kind or funny or hateful. We can analyze our behavior and change. And as such, none of those things can possibly be our true self because they are outside the part of the self that is making those assessments. In the Hindu faith, the true self is the only part which survives death to reincarnate into a new life that will contain its own unique challenges and environmental factors, giving rise to different fears, prejudices, loves, talents, and dreams. In other words, there will be no golden shopping malls because the version of you that cares about such things simply won't be there. But you, the core you, will endure. However, as King notes, this is just an idea. The afterlife, whatever it may entail, is likely more complex and glorious than the greatest human imaginations can conceive even for those, like King, who may have had the opportunity to peek through the door of death into eternity, as detailed in another essay in the book titled My Out-of-Body Experience. In 1990, King was in college and renting a basement bedroom from a friend. While going about his classes one day, he developed a nasty fever and, upon returning home, swallowed a couple of Tylenol and curled up on the bed to sweat it out. About an hour later, his roommate returned home with her little yappy dog in tow. The dog's nails on the floor above woke King, who suddenly found himself sitting on the edge of the bed. He stood, took three steps towards the stairs, when he noticed an odd vibratory sensation moving through his body, as if he was conducting a powerful electrical current. He climbed the stairs and, upon reaching for the door handle, was stunned to find that his hand passed right through it. Looking at his hand and then the rest of his body, King realized that he appeared to be made of a strange vibrating fire. His body had the same shape, but his skin was now a shifting mosaic of burning reds and yellows. He moved back down the stairs, where he came upon his second startling discovery in as many minutes. 
he saw his body on the bed, which seemed almost a stranger to him, some lump of mass separate from who he was at the moment. And there, just beyond his own unconscious body, he witnessed, quote, standing impossibly in the empty space of the room was a large rectangular doorway outlined in golden light. On the other side through the door, I could see a lush paradisiacal jungle teeming with life. Birds screeched at one another in the trees while crawling things scurried invisibly through the underbrush. He sensed intuitively that through that door lay eternal happiness and that he was invited to enter. However, he also knew deep in his gut that to walk through the door would be to die on earth, a thought which brought on an instinctual swell of fear, which in turn propelled him back into his body. He sat bolt upright. The doorway was gone. He was back in his flesh. He also found that his fever was gone. In fact, he felt great. Quote, my body felt golden, radiant, teeming with life. Now, it may be easy to say that he simply had a dream. To that, King can only argue that he had been documenting his dreams for years leading up to the event and never once dreamed of anything like this. More importantly, it didn't feel like any dream he'd had before, nor did the memory of the event dissipate as memories of dreams tend to do. In fact, even decades later, he can still vividly remember his fiery flesh and the golden door to eternity. Which brings us to our second discussion question. So, in light of King's argument regarding the basic division between the personality and the true self, what do we make of stories of children who were born bearing memories of past lives? In many cases we have reviewed on this show, children seem to enter not only with memories of their past lives, but share in some of the same likes, dislikes, and temperaments of their previous selves. Why would those elements of the personality survive from one life to the next if all such things are discarded when the soul departs? Uh, simple. Um, you're, well, operating off the idea that reincarnation is steps on a journey to attempt to unlearn the lies of the illusion that is this world around us and attempting to shed those five vehicles of the Atman that he went into in those essays, um, you haven't unlearned that aspect of your personality yet. Mm. So it's, you, you carry that forward because you're not, you didn't finish your homework in the previous life. Basically. Um, and yes, while Atman is, uh, in this interpretation that, that he's pulling from, well, because I think, Hinduism slash Brahmanism is so vast that I do think that there are that there are traditions where they 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 where they view the Atman slightly differently. But yeah, by and large, Atman is supposed to be at its core featureless because it's what blends back into into Brahman into true reality. Um, but it it still it, it gets things stuck to it. It's still a consistent thing that kind of moves from life to life. So yeah, that does that does not feel like a contradiction to me at all. It feels it feels almost intuitive to me that it's like, yeah, you haven't you haven't unlearned that yet, so that's still just going to roll with you into the next one. You did too much icky stuff in your life and now your Atman's all sticky, so it's going to bring some cat hair with it. That's <laughs> literally just what karma is, is what's stuck to your Atman. I am yeah. now always going to be thinking of it as like, you know, like I just here here's my soul, there's a fucking uh, Tootsie Roll stuck to it, some cat hair, a nug of weed, just whatever was rolling around <laughs> under my desk. It, it's like that game that everyone was playing like back around like 2010, I think, where it was just the big ball that you roll things up into. Do you do you remember what the, it was like that weird Japanese game? 
I have oh, the, no the video idea game. what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, for a second I was trying to think of like a board game where no. you got you got a ball of goo to roll around and that sounded fun. But no, I remember the I remember the video game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you roll eventually you roll around a city like collecting people and cars and buildings. Yeah, it's I think it's your you need to make it big enough to kill God with it or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's exact I remember that. <laughs> I lost a long weekend of that game. My 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 childhood best friend loved that game. It was her yeah. This game is a mystery to me. <laughs> All you need to know is you control a ball, and by absorbing stuff, you get bigger until you eventually can absorb God. So, there, I mean, there's a ton of games like that, like the like where you're a fish, you eat other fish, you get bigger till you're eating all the fish. Yeah, but this one's better because it's a sticky ball. You want know sure. like your Otman, like my Otman. Yeah, all right, like my sticky, sticky Otman. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. That answer is much better than the one that I thought of. Yeah? Yeah, mine too. Um, <laughs> it's almost like I went to school for this. Because, like, my, my thought about it was um, that those aspects of you are still present when you're here. Like, for whatever reason. I like your interpretation of it, of saying, like, they're here because you still have to work on that. You're ch- still trying to shed that, you know, shed that aspect of you. The one part that I struggle with on this in, in general, and this just might be, you know, because uh, where I'm at in my own personal journey is the idea that we essentially don't have a personality in the afterlife. Like, and I, I get, like, I get the idea behind it, right? But also it just sounds so boring to me to not have a personality so like but wouldn't the part of you that would find it boring not be there yes but see that part of me is still here right now (laughs) so that's hence the struggle yeah you know but i i i guess like my thought was like well you you can't not have a personality when you're here because then people will just think you're a robot I don't know. I've met many people who don't really have a personality. Yeah, and maybe in that per- the lack of personality is their personality. Oh, well, I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> um, so, like, ultimately, I think I'm just going to back off my own answer, and I'm just going to piggyback on Jay's here, and I'm just going to say I like that one because it makes way more sense to me than the bullshit that I was thinking, which didn't make any sense. And the more I try to say it, it makes even less sense. Which is just like you gotta have a personality. Sorry, bud. You good, know? T- good talk, buddy. Yeah. Um. No, I mean, I, I, I largely agree. Uh, the I did have the thought of kind of a similar line of thought there. Um, is that we we have often heard, or at least I've I've heard, come across this a couple times, where uh, a lot of children who had past life memories report dying violently, according to the research done uh, by uh, by Jim Tucker and Stevenson, things like that. And so I wonder if, you know, sometimes, uh, yeah, we come into this world, we have the lessons we're supposed to learn, but sometimes shit doesn't go to plan. You know, you stepped out on the street at the wrong time, or you, you ran afoul of the wrong stabby man. And um, so you have to bring some of that stuff forward because you didn't get to deal with it in the time frame you were supposed to deal with it. So because something went wrong and you died too soon, you now have to carry some extra baggage with you. Hmm. So you, it's almost like uh, because something went wrong in somebody else's life, your past life, in this life, you've just got a little bit of extra shit that you've got to carry around. So on planet Earth, because shit goes wrong all the time. Yeah. Like, 
all the time. That's why we have so much baggage all the time, just as humans, because shit's always going sideways, so we're just carrying the lives of 150,000 people who couldn't fucking get their life normally because somebody else just decided to fucking stab them. So now we've just got to carry that shit with us. Huh. Well, now the rising rates of depression and anxiety don't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, it's a good, maybe that's it. We're just all haunted by all the homework we left undone. Maybe it's not even really a past life so much as it's just like these people are, and it's not that you were them, but these people are, for whatever reason, have become bound to you. I don't know. And you have to work through your life to help fix their mistakes. What, what if it's like, okay, so... Or not even mistakes, but help fix their journey. So it's almost like so that they can move on into that afterlife so, too. So it's like you died, and while you were up there in, uh, I don't know, the soul place, yet, you know, there was a couple hungry ghosts hanging around, and a couple of them hitched a ride inside you back to Earth. And now a couple of their desires, you can kind of hear them whispering up to you, and you got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, almost like a almost like a forced mediumship for one one spirit. And it's just their problems. Or, or ten. It's just their problems. That's all you get. You get their damage. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid and I was, you know, processing the reality of death for the first time, uh, you know, fun fun age six. Um, <laughs> uh, my mother was attempting to assuage some of my distress and she did not think that I was ready for my family's actual beliefs of, you know, it's just a complete secession of consciousness and a complete, you know, the candle blows out and you're done. Um, she was she was like, you're probably not ready for that. And what she told me instead is that she's like, when we die, we do stop existing, but not in the way you think we do. She basically told me that what she thought, at least at the time, apparently was that we got broken up into smaller pieces, like our loves and our passions and our talents and our memories and our negative traits and our positive traits, all of that got basically cut up into teeny tiny little soul confetti pieces and scattered onto the wind. And every new soul is just made out of a big blending of those different soul pieces. Mm. And that is so it's entirely possible that like like Rory was saying, these aren't you weren't that person. You just remember that person's death and it hangs around in you as an unresolved trauma, an unresolved issue. And before it can properly blend into your no new soul and kind of sink into this new tapestry of you, it has to be resolved. Maybe just, just so it just lies flat, you know, blend until there are no lumps. Hmm. interesting and i just it does give me the image though of you know dying and there's the halo of golden light and you're ascending to this lofty cloudy plane and there's the great golden gates to eternity and then you know there's there's a some godly figure there ushering you through through a line and it takes you a while to figure out why are there walls on either side of me and next thing you know you're just being shoved into a soul blender mm -hmm. I mean, it's a horrifying thought. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that she pictured the process as significantly more gentle and voluntary. Uh -huh. Into the soul shredder with you. Lord. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No one should have let you watch Purgatoni. Yeah, that's a fun show. Uh, no, but I mean, I, I largely agree with you guys. I think... I mean, again, we come back to, we don't know. Yeah. I don't even know if reincarnation's real. 
those kids might have just been lying or something. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. The how. evidence does not indicate that. But um, but that said, I I mean, also again, we're we're coming in under the assumption that uh the Hindu conception of the Atman is one hundred percent correct. Yeah, and uh, I mean, yeah, we're playing wearing our believer caps and only applying the logic of what is provided to us in the book makes total sense. Um. I, I tend to, again, living in the mystery, I tend towards it's so complicated. It's so beyond us how the metaphysics of the actual reality work that we can't really conceive of it in our in our stupid little monkey languages. Um, and so there's no, basically all we have are these kind of allegorical uh, descriptions that really only get at half of the whole picture. And so that that allows me to disregard a lot of contradictions because I can just say, yeah, well, we're wrong somewhere yeah. very clearly. Um, but beyond that, I mean, if I had to, based off what's just in the book, take an interpretation, I think, Jay, you hit the nail on the head. That's pretty much the only way that mm-hmm. it could work. <laughs> Unless the soul confetti thing is real. And I, I don't know that like, like Rory, not being able to imagine not having a personality. That's one I struggle with. I, I can't, I can't conceive of the fact that all of existence is a cattle farm. Yeah. And it's at the not end, a cattle farm. It's a perpetual. Everyone is everyone else. I'm just going to go outside and sit in the recycling bin and just speed this thing up. Jesus, ask my mom. I don't know. <laughs> ask my mom. I was six. I was six and I don't believe that anymore. Ask her. The fact <laughs> that you remember it, though, is just impressive. I did. I was really scared about what was going to happen when I died. <laughs> and apparently it stuck with you, so you may not believe it on the forefront, but some part of you is still, uh, it's still sitting there. Because you want to know what I remember from when I was six? Nothing. Fucking nothing. Except for that I liked to play, um, I liked to pretend that the laundry basket that my grandma made for me with a sign on it was the bobsled from the Cool Runnings movie. Aww. That is adorable. I know. I was a cute kid. All I right. don't know what happened. You're cute now. Uh, the Thank world you. rubbed dirt in your face is what yeah. happened. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> no, I have memories going back to when I was like three. Yeah, I don't. I mean, here's the thing. All, no. my, all my early childhood memories are the times when I was um, the most scared I had ever been in my life. Yeah. Like, I remember certain movies. I remember certain books. I remember, uh, for example, uh, I was around that age, around age six, when I encountered scary stories to tell in the dark. Yeah. And the story of the scarecrow, Harold. Yeah. And the image at the end where he, he skins a man and stretches that person's skin out on the roof to dry. That image has never fucking left me. That's true. I do remember stuff like that. Like, I remember scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, the one for me was the toe one. Yeah. Actual events from my life, nothing. But stories and fiction, it my brain's a steel trap. My earliest memory is beautiful. It was the first day my father had helped me climb the maple tree in our yard, and I was so small, and I was up in this high branch, and literally the only thing I could see was sunlight coming through leaves. <laughs> That's my earliest memory. You know, right, that is beautiful. I think my, you know, it's funny, is my earliest memory also involves swings, and I think this is genuinely my earliest memory, because there might be some that were before it, but I can't tell where they were in the timeline. But I remember I was at I was at the swings with my my mom and my brother and I was in the middle and we were all swinging and I lost my grip and fell on my back flat and knocked the wind out of me. And, you know, I'm a kid wind knocked out. You, it's terrifying. Yeah. You can't mm-hmm. breathe. And I just remember looking up 
terrified looking for help and my brother and my mom look down at me and start laughing and because apparently i had a really funny look on my face mm-hmm. and that's my first memory yeah my my <laughs> earliest memory is also one of a uh, kind of embarrassment i was trying to quote the lyrics to a song in front of a group of my parents or my dad and my grandma and my aunt and probably friends i don't remember and i got the lyrics wildly wrong because I was a child. And that was probably hilarious to them. Well, it was hilarious to them because they laughed. And I was a very sensitive kid. Uh, so them laughing at something that I thought was very cool made me very sad immediately. And then I cried. So and what we've learned away. is that the human brain comes online in response to intense emotion. And if you're very lucky, you get to be Jay. And if, if you're everyone else, you get to be Rory and I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, we ready for the next section? Yeah, let's do it. Yes. The gods of old have retreated up the mountain, and the monsters that once prowled our darkest nightmares have been relegated to horror movies and fantasy. The era of myth is dead. Killed by the technological age with its promises of endless discovery, the banishment of superstition, and the rise of man to his rightful place as ruler of this shallow material reality. This refrain, commonly voiced by the materialist scientific establishment, has become typical of what some regard as the post-mythological era. As Michael Vanoy Adams is quoted while addressing the International Association for Jungian Studies, quote, At this stage in the history of consciousness, it is a fallacy to resort to any ancient mythological figures in an attempt to account for the modern situation. The modern psychological situation is utterly without precedent, without parallel. It is so radically different that it has fundamentally broken with myth as such, that is, with the entire level of consciousness on which truly mythic experience was feasible. The modern situation being, of course, the information age, with the rise of technologies such as the computer, the internet, and virtual reality. In other words, because our science and technology can now explain much of the natural world, mankind no longer needs myth to account for lightning strikes, floods, or why you can't get a date. However, King argues... This assertion is founded on a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of myth. Myth, he believes, rather than providing explanations for the natural world, is in effect a language, one our souls use to talk to us, bearing messages from the divine. He returns to the idea of the Hindu Atman, the true self at the center of your being. As explained through the writings in the Hindu religious text, I am gonna butcher this, the Tatiriya Upanishad? That's about as close as I can get it. Okay, yeah. T-A-I-T-T-I-R-Y-A space U-P-A-N-I-S-H-A-D. So um, look it up. Yeah, Upanishad is... is I think so. Is, yeah. Yeah, it is that's... G-O-O-G-L-E dot C-O-M. What? Google. Google.com. Look it up. You said look it up, and I was spelling out Google. Oh, jeez. I thought you were, like, Why spelling... Why the fuck did it take you that long? I thought you were, like, trying to, like... Because I was trying to, like, phon- <laughs> phonetically move... The- I thought that was, like, the phonetic pronunciation. I was no. like, where are the G's coming from? <laughs> the, the joke was lost on you. Move on. <laughs> so, according to that text, the soul is enclosed in five conchas, or wreaths, which separate the true self from lived reality. The outermost of these shells, the Anamaya Kosha, a.k.a. the food sheath, is our body, which takes in food to form its mass and becomes food after we die. Next is the Pranamaya Kosha, a.k.a. the breath or energy sheath, which I understood to mean the vital energy which we take from food that is used to fuel this meat body. 
Then comes the monomaya kosha, the mental sheath, which is the eye that lives in our head. And it is here that, for the vast majority of humanity, our inward journey stops, as those first three layers are critical to existing here on Earth. However, deeper layers do exist, which can be found via meditation. Quote, when we sit in meditation, however, concentrating our senses on the breath as it enters and leaves the body, the difference stands out. We become aware that the mind is not the breath is not the body, and we begin to notice more us out there, beyond the body, mind, breath. That space beyond is the domain of the Vigyanmaya Kosha, a.k.a. the wisdom sheath, which is where transcendent knowledge flows into the self from the universe. I read this as the layer at which we receive knowledge from the universal unconsciousness, the divine, or perhaps the location of the all-knowledge discussed in our episode on Gary Lockman's Secret Teachers of the Western World. And it is from this layer that the spiritual experiences emanate, in turn giving rise to our myths, superstitions, and religions. And finally comes the Andamaya Kosha, the bliss sheath, which we are to understand as the true self, which exists in a state of unending bliss and connection to the universe. Where myth is important here is in the gap between the first three layers in the lower two. As we live in general ignorance of those inner two layers, they must instead use myth as a means of communicating with us up here at the ego level. Quoting legendary mythologist Joseph Campbell, quote, The power of myth is to put the mental sheath in touch with this wisdom sheath, which is the one that speaks of the transcendent. In other words, the wisdom sheath acts as a sort of interpreter taking grand universal truths and messages and translating them into image-based messages we can decode in our conscious minds. Messages which form the basis of our religions and spiritual beliefs, in turn providing us with a path to discover our own inner spiritual layers. To break from myth, as many have done in the modern age, is to separate oneself from the transcendent, to be trapped in this body, ignorant of the messages the universe is sending you. However, wouldn't this mean that all myths are essentially false? Just metaphoric stories and images passed to us from our inner selves? In the ninth essay of the book, titled How to Think About Gods, Are Religious Myths True or False? King approaches a possible answer to this question, being that myth may just be true and false at the same time, depending on where you're standing. Citing Professor Grant L. Voth's lecture, Myth and Human History, quote, The first thing to be said about the relationship between religion and myth is that a myth can only be a myth if you don't believe it, if you stand outside of it in some way. If you stand inside a myth, then it becomes something quite different. It becomes divine truth. Moses parting the Red Sea or Jesus' resurrection are clearly myths to Buddhists and Hindus. Muhammad's night flight to heaven looks like a myth unless you happen to be Muslim. Joseph Smith's discovery of the golden tablets looks like a myth unless you happen to be Mormon prompting King to wonder if this concept of being inside a myth versus outside may be more than a useful metaphor. What if our mental location shapes reality? To the Christian who stands inside the myth of the resurrection of Christ, that event becomes literal truth. For the atheist standing outside the myth, the resurrection is literally false. Both are true because both individuals are living in fundamentally different objective realities, shaped by their projected desires and belief structures, which, in a very real way, create the reality they live in. To better help us wrap our brains around this concept, he cites a non-religious example, love. Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, who we are to understand as inside love, describes love in highly evocative, poetic language. Quote, 
So I love you because I know no other way than this, where I does not exist, nor you, so close that your hand on my chest is my hand, so close that your eyes close as I fall to sleep. Meanwhile, scientist Mega Alcorn describes love in purely mechanical terms. Quote, Love is a complex neurobiological phenomenon relying on trust and belief as well as brain reward activity, i.e. the limbic processes. Now, both descriptions are correct to a point. For one inside of love, like Neruda, love is a deep and soulful spiritual union. For one outside of love, it is merely chemicals in the brain. King suggests that gods may work in the same way. To those who believe in a particular myth, it is true. Faith creates the reality of the myth and hence enforces that faith. If you believe in Zeus strongly enough, he may just show up at your door. Which brings us to our third discussion question. (gasps) Now let's marinate on this idea for a moment and relate it to the paranormal topics we've discussed here on the show. Could phenomenon such as ghosts, UFOs, and cryptids operate by the same basic mechanism, meaning that such things become objectively true to the believer but remain objectively fictitious to the non-believer? And if so, how do we rectify stories we have heard of people claiming no interest in paranormality yet having experiences all the same. So, I will answer this in twofold. The first is, um, assuming that, like, going under the assumption that they do operate under the same basic mechanism and that they can be real and not real at the same time, uh, the objective, or I guess, or, yeah, uh, the answer to how do we rectify that, uh, people lie. <laughs> Uh, that That is one way to look at it. Sometimes people lie. But I also just don't believe that's true. I don't think that in this case that UFOs, cryptids, uh, ghosts, that those things are real to some because they believe and fake to others because they don't believe. And that is because of some of the like examples of some stories that we've read that that just, it doesn't, it doesn't jive. Right, it does. It, it's it's not even just like it doesn't jive because it doesn't make sense, or it, it it's because it literally in front of us in this story, assuming that that story is true, it goes against that. Because we have, we have lots of stories of people who didn't believe in UFOs till they saw one. Right, and the one that actually stands out to me the most here is uh, Alma Fielding and her husband. That's a good point. So her husband didn't believe, in a way, right? He didn't acknowledge it. He didn't accept that it was real. It was kind of, it was Alma's problem. You know, it wasn't his, but it was real and it was happening around him and he even saw it. Well, or also like uh, uh, Charlie Charlie in The Uninvited. Yeah. 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 Oh, maybe that's what I was thinking of was Charlie. Maybe it was both. Maybe that's what, it doesn't matter. One of those. That one. Yeah. Um, Either way, that- Doubting husband. Yeah. that, That sticks out in my brain to the point where it's like, well, it can't be real and not real if somebody's seeing it and still choosing not to believe it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, in, in my mind, at least, like I can't, like, but so I, I think, I, I don't want to say it's either real or it's not. I just think that what, how we're, we're putting it into two buckets that don't actually add up to what we're talking about. I think the reality is it's, it, it's, it, it's not either or, it might be both, you know, uh, but I think ultimately if they are real, Assuming that they are, they're real to everybody. It's just a matter of, to me, I think it's more of a matter of frequency. Whether you are 
vibrating at the correct frequency to see it. You couldn't see my quotes over vibrating, but I did them. Um, or, or, or not. And I, because there are, there is other evidence to suggest that they, that we can alter our own reality through different things like meditation and prayer and things like that. And then all of a sudden those things are real or, or rather that we are in the same frequency as them to be able to see them at that time. Well, it's a lot like, uh, that study I blew Jay's mind with a while back, uh, where, they trained uh, groups of people in a city in transcendental meditation and had them meditating on peace and tranquility. And what they found was that uh, violent crimes dropped significantly in the mm-hmm. city. Yep. I want to hurl myself into space. So, like, I guess that's kind of where I, where, where I fall there. It's like, I don't, I, I, I think, like I said, I think we're, we're trying to put things into two buckets that ultimately it's like, I think we're looking at it from the wrong perspective when we're doing it, when we're trying to put them in like a real or not real believer or non-believer. It's like just assume, just assuming that people, that millions of people aren't just crazy, mm-hmm. right? That these things are real. What is the, what is something that is similar amongst all of those, right? So what is similar amongst a, a Christian that is having a religious experience and speaking in tongues and a druid who is barefoot in the forest meditating. The similarities to me there is that they're both seeking, they're both meditating in some way, or like if you're in worship, you're definitely in a different state of mind. You know, I, I've been in that, that, that state of mind where I'm so entranced by the worship that I'm that I'm, that I'm having an experience like that. But I've also had the other, you know, been on the other side in a completely different faith, having a very similar experience. So I, I don't think one is real or not. I think they're both real. I think the similarity is that I was in the correct mindset. Maybe I was vibrating at a better frequency at that time to have that experience. Okay. If any of that made sense. Uh, it did. I think I get what you're getting at there. Um, yes, I do believe that there are things that can be objectively true for one person and objectively false for another person. I think that's just what religion is. Um, it's like, especially we, we talk about like, well, what is real on this podcast? And in the definition of real is it has intrinsic worth and has intrinsic power and is something that impacts the course of your life because it is in because it is interwoven with your life yeah that that's that's real and kind kind of like what i was going going on about earlier about like i'm positive ufos are divine to many people and they will never be divine to me both of those things are completely true um so yeah i think i think things can be yeah i think i like I said, I think that's just what religion and magic kind of are and spirituality too is something, things that are objectively true to some people and objectively false to other people because we're all just trying to get through the fucking day. Uh, and as for the people having experiences and claiming that they don't believe in any of this stuff, doesn't yearn for it, yada, yada, yada. Well, in the like, Last quarter of this book, uh, uh, King goes into uh, the the Jungian concept of the unconscious and the things that we push down yep. because we decide we don't need them. 
that's entirely possible that's what that is. If it's just like, I do not believe in anything that is not math and chemicals. And it's like, but meanwhile, down at the bottom of their soul, it's just like, please, I miss the fairies. <laughs> and so it's entirely possible that the unconscious is what's calling that in that situation. Okay, so taking both your ideas together here, I'm just thinking through this. So uh, we have Rory's concept. We have to resist. Uh, we have to resist dichotomous thinking. Yes. Uh, and uh, thinking things could, you know, thinking in terms of nuance, things can be true and not true at the same time. It does make me think, though. So, what is the difference then between, say, God and a space alien? Uh, especially if we go the ultra terrestrial or interdimensional, the 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 not in a spaceship from another planet kind of a conception of an alien. I would say that it's where you're at in that, going back to the uh, the fractured glass, where you're at in the fracture. Well, yeah, so what if, it, what if, okay, what is, I mean, we go back to kind of what is God? It's pure consciousness then in this conception. Uh, that is immaterial by definition. So what if the further you are from the point of impact because of your frequency change, the more material you become at the outside edges that are the densest bits. Um, and as you move inward, you become more immaterial. Now, where that's important is, is that gods are a conception of gods being closer to that center are immaterial. So they can exist in that liminal, maybe real, maybe not place. Mm -hmm. Whereas things like say the Do Michigan dog man, what if that people who don't believe it can have an experience because it is further away from the point of impact, so it has more of a physical form. It can assert its own reality because it is it is, does not have to exist in that liminal state. So the 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 cryptids uh, li kind of live almost on the out out it the almost like the furthest points away from the center. Either that, or because we've seen, I mean, stories like Bigfoot's vanishing and reappearing. Same thing with Dogman. They they're just they are closer to the center than we are, but they're not so far away that they're incomprehensible to us or that they can right so they're closer to where we are at that like at that point but they're not so far towards the center that they're like a god yeah yeah and so and at once and i guess maybe that's the downside once you become fully immaterial you become not really real anymore you're both real and not real at the same time well it's almost like, and then yeah yeah and it's uh, you, it's interesting because then it's like, well, if you're if you're in that state where you're, it's like there you almost you don't have any kind of physicality and maybe you can't even enter into this 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 world anymore. So it's like, how do you then explain things like miracles? And I think the the answer to that, in a weird way, is your belief in whatever entity is doing that is really just you doing it because of that belief, right? So like thinks there are some people that believe that you can heal your body through meditation, mm -hmm. right? Maybe the, the miracle healing that we see from preachers and from other people is really, it's their belief in the God that's letting the, these things happen. It's not that the God himself is doing it. It's just that they are so in tuned in that, that moment that, they're, that their body is able to react differently. Yeah, that or we go, we go back to the idea of the Wiccan egregore as it was presented. In that situation, it could be that, hey, that priest is a part of the divine because everything is. Mm. And by their belief in that God, they shape the divine into a mask that is able to do the things they need it to do. 
because ultimately they don't believe he w- wouldn't believe I can do this. He believes God can do this. Right. And yeah. So, yeah. So that makes sense. Sorry, I'm just probably regurgitating what no, you just said. What, see, what you did was translate my word vomit into better words. I'm glad my degrees are going to good use. Yeah. Yeah. No, me too. Thank God. Somebody needs to translate what the fuck I'm saying. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. I mean, I understand what you're getting at. No, no, I no, I I mean I barely understand what I'm getting at. So thank God you guys do. Uh, either that or just Jay and I are terminally insane. Uh d- why can't it be both? That's true. I gotta stop thinking with dichotomous thinking. What were we just talking about? I can be good at translating things and insane. Yeah, you'll never meet an enlightened person who's not fucked up. Yeah, truth. Yeah, I I I'm honestly I feel like uh I mean, even if you don't follow pursue enlightenment, just talking about these concepts and thinking about them can make you a little batty. Well, yeah, it's so hard because it's like you're trying to make sense of things that make no sense, especially with like when you throw, honestly, like the, the thing that throws me for a loop the most, and it's probably just because we've done so little research on it at this point, is cryptids. It's like trying to find where they fit inside all of paranormality, just, I don't even know if that's a word, but I like it, paranormality. Um, uh, like trying to find where they fit in uh, in all of this is so fucking bonkers because ultimately it's like they are to me they're like they're the one out of left field don't you worry buddy it's coming oh i know i'm looking forward to it honestly we got a great sasquatch book coming up that is that is all about spiritual squatch good i'm i'm excited to read it <laughs> i just i think i just heard jay growl a little <laughs> I don't know which is worse for you, aliens or, or, or cryptids at this point, because we've done so much on aliens, you're just kind of on this side of the fence now. Don't worry. They appear to be a thing. The Squatch <laughs> will get you next. I'm, I'm, dude, I'm, I'm pumped for Squatch. No one can resist the Squatch. I prefer the Jersey Devil. Of course you do. It's demonstrably false. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know that. If anyone's had a Jersey Devil sighting, understand I'm not besmirching you. I have just yet to uh, encounter many credible sighting no, reports. I, it was made up by a newspaper in the 1800s. I understand that. But why does that mean that it's not real now? Actually, that's, that's a good point. It could good. be real now. <laughs> Were we not just talking about egregores? Actually, that's the exact same. That's the exact same trajectory that I envisioned for the actual, like the actual Christian Devil of like. I don't think that was a real thing when they first invented that concept, but oh God, is he real now? There is a uh, a TikToker that I follow who has a PhD in, um, like the Abrahamic faiths as well as like he's got a, he's got a lot of knowledge with within Egyptology and all that too because they're so closely uh, tied together. Yeah, and he would agree with you. Uh, he has many many videos on. Um, how we invented the devil. All right. Uh, speaking of the devil, are we ready for the next section about yes. God? Let's do it. The next two essays we will cover concern the light and easy topic of the nature of God. In the 10th essay of the book, Is God Imagination? King explores the idea that God, rather than being imaginary, is imagination itself. And for experts on imagination, he turns to the legendary bards and poets of the Romantic era, primarily the iconic William Wordsworth and his 8,000-line poem, The Prelude, 
which documents the development of his own creative imagination. And can I just say, 8,000 lines in a poem, that is impressive. I mean, that's where it's worth. Yeah. He, he, he was prolific. The first stage is the open imagination of childhood. Back before our games had rules, and we lived in a perpetual state of play. As an example, King details the moment his own childhood ended. It was summer break between 4th and 5th grade, and he and his sister, as they had done every summer prior, set out to play a game called Gas Station. The children would set up a card table convenience store, stock it with soda and candy cigarettes, and then take turns riding their bike around the block and stopping at the station. While one sibling played the motorist and sat back smoking candy cigarettes, the other would play the role of the gas station attendant and check the oil, fill the tank, and polish the chrome. It was a game without rules, without regulations, born on the fertile fields of childhood imagination. It honestly sounded kind of fun. Yeah, when I was, that sounds like something I would have done as a kid. Yeah. That is, until that fateful summer. Excited, the siblings set up their station as always, and King's sister set out to circle the block. Only when she pulled up to the station, quote, we looked at each other and felt ashamed. She felt it. We could see it in each other's reddening faces. We were too old for this. What if someone saw us playing pretend like little children? They packed up their station and spent the day alone in their rooms reading and brooding. And from that day forward, play no longer meant the type of unstructured fantasy they were used to. Rather, it was supplanted by sports, card games, board games, games which engaged the imagination but did not originate from it. In Wordsworth's poem, this period is exemplified by the image of Adam in the Garden of Eden, walking side by side with God in a perpetual state of discovery and wonderment. In this, Wordsworth saw us all as Adam, and God is the creative imagination. His later expulsion from the garden, then, is allegorical to the process of growing into adolescence. As we age, we become aware of the larger world, of the rules and taboos, and, shaped by those influences, we begin to hem our creative spirit in. Quote, Wordsworth saw the demands of civilization that separate us from nature and thrust us into the responsible society of men. I read this to mean things like education, employment, money, marriage, and family. The third stage, being the mature embrace of creativity, is then, allegorically, the arrival of Christ to redeem fallen humanity. Just as our imagination became beaten down by the rigors of adult life, so too had the world, in Christian theology, been beaten down by evil. The return of Christ is then seen as the process of reclaiming one's creative spirit through art. Art which often follows set rules and guides, yet which contains within it sparks of the free creativity of childhood. In this way, Wordsworth conceived of God as the same imagination which fills our early days with wonder. It is only once we become bogged down by the rigors of the material world that we lose sight of God, only to find him again in the kindling of the mature creative spirit. And this idea wasn't exclusive to Wordsworth. In fact, it was rather common among Romantic-era poets. For example, William Blake is quoted as saying, quote, The world of imagination is the world of eternity. It is the divine bosom into which we shall all go after the death of the body. This world of imagination is infinite and eternal. There exists in that eternal world the permanent realities of everything which we see reflected in nature. All things are comprehended in their eternal forms in the divine body of the Savior, true vine of eternity, the human imagination. Likewise, another luminary, Samuel Taylor Coolridge, remarked, quote, The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception 
and is a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. Many religions regard God as the supreme creator, yet in much the same way, these poets noted that our imaginations can also create entire worlds populated with their own people, animals, and even gods. And if we conceive of our physical world as a projection of consciousness, then what is the imagination other than the supreme creator of reality? Neuroscientists tell us that the world we experience is in fact created entirely within our head in response to the input received from our various receptors, eyes, ears, nose. While idealist philosophers go a step further to suggest that all of reality is a construct that we are actively building. With those concepts in mind, King challenges us to ask again, is God imagination? He nor us know the answer, but he invites us to sit with the question for a time and see where it takes us. In another essay, God Killed the Great Mother, Science is Dancing on Her Grave, Let's Bring Her Back and Save the World, King pivots to discuss an idea called animism. This essay opens with a quote from Stephen Harding's Towards an Animistic Science of Earth, in which he lays out what Harding saw is the basic problem of our modern scientific age. Quote, If we are to have a chance of surviving the looming catastrophe that science and technology have inadvertently helped to create, we will need more wisdom, not more analytical capacity. We now urgently need to develop a new approach in science that integrates analysis with wisdom, fact with value, and nature with culture, by replacing our demonstrably unwise and until recently unconscious assumption that the world is an inert machine with the arguably wiser and more accurate metaphor that the world is a vast, animate, and hence sentient being. To understand this more fully, King tries to map out the possible source of the current materialist paradigm which has built our modern age. Materialist meaning that the world is to be seen and understood as an inert machine, a thoughtless culmination of scientific processes and a finite physical universe. And while here in the modern age this is an easy concept for us to understand, it is important to note that such an idea is relatively new. For the vast majority of our history, mankind rather saw the world as a living entity in itself, a sort of primordial earth goddess. This is a form of what is known as animism, the belief that objects, places, creatures, and even planets contain distinct spiritual essences, that they are alive and thinking, just not in ways we might recognize. Quoting Professor Grant L. Voth's lecture series, Myth and Human History, quote, There was a prehistoric span of around 25,000 years where the physical earth was everywhere where the physical earth was everywhere considered to be a living goddess her names and stories varied by culture but the core belief was universal the earth was the body of the great mother all living things were born from her and returned to her at death not only people but everything that exists was born from her and so everything that exists was alive this is our species oldest known religious belief however around 5000 years ago something began to change. As a species, we began to innovate. We domesticated the horse and livestock. We began building and shaping the natural world around us in ways unheard of in ages past. And as such, we began dreaming of warrior sky gods who more closely aligned with the world man was building than the one the earth had given them. Quote, beliefs about how people and animals and mountains and rivers got here changed. In some places, the chief sky god killed the great mother and constructed the world from pieces of her dismembered body. In others, he fashioned the world from his own body or from pre-existing chaos, the way a craftsman assembles a finished product. The feminine metaphor of creation equals birth 
became the masculine metaphor of creation equals making. The Great Mother was demoted to consort, helper, or wife of the sky god. In the Middle Period came pantheons like the Greek with Zeus and Hera, or the Norse with Odin and Frigga. Then, around 2000 BCE, monotheism arose to challenge the pantheon gods, and by identifying God as the sole, usually male deity, in effect kicked the Great Mother off her throne. Great news, there's only one God, and he's a dude. Who is presumed to have created everything with no outside help, nor even conferring with the instruction booklet. In effect, the monotheistic God replaced the goddess, and in doing so, stripped the agency from the earth, because by reframing it as dead matter to be shaped by the divine male God, we remove the idea that the earth was ever alive to begin with. This concept eventually became part of our foundational understanding of the universe, and when the Age of Enlightenment came, it was a concept which worked its way into our earliest scientific thoughts. The world is dead material waiting for man to shape it, meaning that science has, for its entire history, been citing 4,000-year-old religious dogma when it asserts a materialist basis for reality. Which is a problem, as King believes, it is only because of this belief that we as a species feel a-okay with wreaking the havoc we, with wreaking the havoc that we have on our world. Why worry about the feelings of the earth when laying out a new strip mine? Why should we be concerned with mowing down a forest when you believe those trees are there to be taken and used? Fixing the damage we have caused will require us to reframe this assumption and see the earth as a living, breathing entity whom we are responsible to. Yet, we must do so without losing sight of the scientific progress and rationalism that have propelled our species to our current heights. This, he argues, is the basis of what is called scientific animism. Which brings us to our fourth discussion question. Now, while I am sorely tempted to just point at Jay and tell them to ramble about their thoughts on these essays, in the name of conducting a more organized discussion, I'll instead ask, what is God? So, instead of just having Jay ramble, you're, uh, you're, you, you decided to pose the hardest question known to man. Correct. Okay, thanks. I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't think of what else to ask here other than, you know, what is your conception of a, of a divine creator? No, 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 it's a good question. I just, I just had to give you shit about it. I mean, I, I usually deserve the shit that's thrown at me, so I'll take it. Yeah, well, Jay, you wanna... Yeah, you wanna... <laughs> what is God? <laughs> What is God? <laughs> I, uh, supreme power, d divine creation, truth, truth, and more truth. It, the thing beyond all things, what exists between two ticks of a clock, uh, the thing that separates rainbows into individual bands. It's... I don't know, the feeling I get when I think I'm out of cake and then I open the fridge and I'm not, that might be God. I don't know. <laughs> um, what? It, that's, that is a massive question. That's the biggest question you've ever asked me. What, what is God? I, I, I think God exists beyond the separation of male and female beyond the separation of mother and father. I think God definitely supersedes a human concept like parenthood. I, I do not view God as, as, as a parent that might be my personal baggage, but I kind of reject a lot of parental images of God. I, 
truth. That is always what I circle back to is, 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 is God with a capital G the truth because it's, because individual god individual smaller gods individual deities and entities it's just like well which one are you talking about and then i'll explain what that one is but like god with a capital g the the true the, the actual base divinity is it's it's truth god is god is truth whatever truth is it's the point of the glass where the ball peen hammer hit it probably yeah that or god's the hammer or god's the one wielding the hammer or God's the squirrel wondering why that guy is breaking his own window. <sighs> well, in that case, you've completely removed God from this equation and something else hit the window with the ball-peen hammer. And that's the devil, kids. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is probably the, the, the hardest question that's ever been posed on this show. Well, I think it's the, one of the hardest questions that's been posed in human history. And... To me, and because this is entirely subjective, so to Jay, God is truth. To me, God is love. Because I think without love and compassion, we have nothing. Okay. And the reason why I think that is because I've believed in something my entire life, right? Some kind of God, some kind of deity, something. But God... I think be just, yeah, I, I can't think of any other way to explain it. I, th I think that God is love. And I think the reason is because we are here, if we are one, if we believe that we are one people, one thing, one, all, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, we all go to the same universe, the same unconsciousness, the same whatever. Mm -hmm. Kind of been a theme throughout this book. Yeah, if we believe that that's, that that's the truth, the only way that we can truly live inside of that world, that, that view, is in perfect love. Because you can't be one with something, you can't be one with something or somebody that you hate, that you feel that kind of hate to. And you know what? Maybe... The answers between us both is the same because maybe the truth is love. Maybe love is the truth, you know. Um, I mean, that's the, that's the Sufi position is that, yes, God is truth, but truth is love. Right. And that's like, even so, years and years ago, um, when I was trying for the 15th bazillionth time to be a uh, practicing evangelical Christian, I was a part of a group of people who were trying to plant a church. And the foundation of this church and the reason why I loved this group of people and still love many of them, um, don't talk to them as much, but I think they are all genuinely good people for what they believe. The foundation of that church was that Jesus equals love. Okay, the, the symbol that they used was literally a cross, an equal sign, and a heart. You know, that that is what they believed because they believed that the foundational message of Jesus was love your neighbor, love yourself, and love the world. Um, which, at a very basic level, that's true. That is the, uh, the, the message. And I, that, that has resonated with me from that day, from before, and, then, and, and, and after, because ultimately, without it, without love, 
we're we're nothing. I don't want to say your inability to feel love because that's not true, right? You can, and I'm not saying romantic love. I'm not saying friendship love. I'm just saying love. Go back to uh, Whitley Strieber, the a concept of objective love. Yeah, love for all of existence. E- exactly, because like, I don't want people to think that because you don't feel romantic love, if you're arrow, that you can't, you you then can never be one with the 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 consciousness. That's not what I'm saying. Because even a romantic people feel love. It's just not maybe not romantic love in the same way, right? Um, I, 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 I just think that that is at the center of everything in its simplest form and everything that we've talked about, except for maybe some aspect of aliens. Um, <laughs> the center point of it all is it comes back to that. We have to, we just have to fucking love one another and stop being such douchebags. And I think that's what God is. Ultimately, that is, that, that is what I think. There you go. Okay. I mean, uh, for me, I'm going to, ret- I mean, for a long time growing up, I had the conception of God as, you know, the guy up in the mountain who watches the things I did in the shower as a young man. Yeah, um, San- Santa Claus, but for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess my evolving view was pretty well summed up in something in one of the quotes I read earlier, the one from Samuel Taylor Coolridge. Uh, and I'll just say a part of it here again. The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception and as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. And I think that's what God is. God is the statement I am because God is existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, when God says I am, it is not saying I am good, I am bad, I am powerful. It is simply saying, I exist, and from my emanation, everything exists. So, is that essentially saying that God is all of us? Well, yes. We are all of us because we are. We are God. So, in, that, in this way, God is not the point of the glass that the hammer hit. God is the pane of glass. Ah, damn it. I was just about to say that. Uh, so, I mean, at least that, and that's at least an idea I like. And when you think about... Some of the other concepts we've talked about, like, for example, at the smallest level, there is no uh, barrier between, say, me and the clothes I wear, the, the, the chair I'm sitting in. It's just swirling masses of electrons and protons and neutrons moving about, and it's just this constant shifting sea of particles, and that's everything. That's us. That's this table. That's our listeners right now. It's the earbuds that are sitting in your head. It is the car you might be driving in. Um, it's all the same thing. And that's kind of where I come back to is God is existence. In a weird way, I kind of think all three of us said the exact same thing. I think we did. Just different interpretations of the same thing. We got out of the thesaurus and we all picked a different word we wanted to champion. And now we're going to fight to death over it. <laughs> I like my odds. But I think that I, I honestly think that that makes it even more fascinating. Oh, absolutely. That in a way, like we interpreted the exact same thing in 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 in, in, in entirely different ways, but came to almost the same conclusion. Yeah, well, I mean, and it, that doesn't surprise me though, because ultimately, I mean, this from what I've read and what I've seen, that idea is really what sits at the core of a lot of major religions. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. When you get down to it, um, they they they, and I kind of go back to that idea we talked about back with Gary Lockman. Uh, where the inward journey to ascension is dressed in the cultural imagery that is familiar yeah. to them, 
ultimately, it seems to me that there is some, again, perennial philosophy that we are just in a perpetual state of reinterpreting through our own expectations and mm-hmm. life experiences. What is spirituality but one big ink blot test? Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. God yeah. is an ink block test. We, yeah, we all looked at the same question, and I saw truth. You saw love, and he saw I. I he saw just an assertion of existence. And every now and then, someone looks at that ink block test and says, "Why does God want me to kill my neighbor?" Because you're not taking your medicine. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, uh. I, are we ready for the last section? Let's do it. Now that I've don't worry, the last question is not as hard. No, I'm glad. I'm glad that you uh, that you did that question ultimately because it made me think about it. And since you sent me the sent us the questions uh, Monday, I think Monday. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've literally uh, that is living. It's been living rent free in my brain. Like, what the fuck am I even going to say? Good. For our last section, we are going to examine three essays from the book, which explore the nature and potential source of human spirituality. Beginning with the fourth essay in the book, Are You Spiritual?, King explores the fundamental misunderstanding many have regarding spirituality versus religion. As he argues, being spiritual does not require belief in a god, or that you follow a religion, or that you engage in a magical practice. It doesn't even require a mystical experience or any forms of spiritual exercise, such as yoga or meditation. No, what makes someone spiritual is how they view themselves, and by extension the rest of the species, which really comes down to one question. Are you a meat puppet? (laughs) We return here again to the basic argument between a strictly materialist interpretation of the world and a spiritual one. Under a materialist paradigm, the creature we conceive of as the self is little more than a lump of organic matter clinging to a rock hurtling through a vast and indifferent universe. Religious or spiritual beliefs in this worldview are pure fantasy or hallucinations or lies. However, if one believes themselves to be anything more than meat, King argues, they are spiritual by nature because their belief implies the existence of something, anything beyond a materialist vision of the world. An idea which is addressed more deeply in the sixth essay of the book, where King explores the difference between religious adherence and spirituality. In his 20s, hot on the trail of a series of what he described as spontaneous spiritual experiences, King converted to Catholicism a choice made due in part to his fascination with the writings of mystic Jesuit priest and paleontologist Pierre Telhard de Chardin. He hoped that the church would provide him the framework he needed to more deeply explore his emerging spiritual life. However, during the year of Katskumanic classes required for conversion, he discovered that the lessons on offer only scratched the surface of the deep esoteric truths he sought, and when he asked about those bits of the Catholic faith that interested him most greatly— being the saints, mystics, and visionaries of the church, he was assured that all of that would come later. As you might expect, later never came. And while outside of class, he was continually fascinated by Chardin and other esoteric Christian writers, in class he was bored to tears by lessons covering only the most basic, surface-level understanding of the Christian faith. Quote, I'd come to Catholicism seeking a larger context in which to frame my spontaneous spiritual experiences. What I found was a frame with no room for my picture. And it wasn't much better when he attended Mass, where he perceived the congregation engaged in the rituals and mechanics of Mass, but found few interested in the deeper mystical ideas which sat at the root of those rituals. Instead of using religion to frame spiritual experiences, 
he found most content to allow religion to replace spiritual experiences. Exploring this idea more deeply, he discusses the origins of Zen Buddhism as being rooted in Zen's rejection of mainstream Buddhism, which, while theorizing and talking about the path to enlightenment, was accused of seldom engaging in the actual work of ascending and becoming a Buddha. Citing the same Mark Berkson lecture from earlier, quote, Imagine a religion that centered around the amazing qualities of mangoes. What if numerous members of the religion spent their time studying the history of mangoes, reading accounts of people who described the wonderful taste of mangoes, setting up businesses to sell mangoes, and learning the botanical details of the mango, and yet have never tasted a mango? You'd want to shake them and say, put down the books, stop reading about other people's experiences, taste the mango, that's all you need. Taste the mango. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) These people who don't taste the mango, who only engage in the ritual without seeking a deeper spiritual truth, have divorced the religious practice from the underlying spirituality. However, the same cannot be said going the other way, where King argues the spiritual experience cannot be divorced from religious belief. For example, Zen Buddhists seek to, through meditation and self-exploration, transcend themselves and in turn become a Buddha one who has seen the ultimate truth of reality. However, to want that, and to work towards it, requires the belief that such a thing is possible. For example, it is said that upon achieving enlightenment, the Buddha attained perfect recall of his 500 past lives, a claim which cannot be proven by modern science, yet is among the goals of those looking to follow in his footsteps. Quote, Buddha's enlightenment and past lives are religious beliefs. Taking either one seriously is a religious act. Trust in the reality of the Buddha's awakening enough to pursue a taste of it for yourself requires religious faith. A concept which many may be uncomfortable with because, in the Western world, Christianity is often seen as synonymous with religion in general. Yes, it is. So much so that when one rejects Christianity, it is often said that they are rejecting religion, even if that rejection leads the individual to practicing Eastern or other forms of religious practice. Such individuals are often labeled, usually by themselves, as spiritual but not religious, simply because they adhere to a form of religion that is outside normative culture. But to King, that doesn't make them any less religious. And for those who simply seek to adopt forms of spirituality without adopting the associated mystical worldview, it can hardly be said to be spiritual at all. For example, many practitioners of yoga or tai chi do so for health benefits and ignore the spiritual roots of their actions. Such actions, then, cannot be expressions of spirituality. In other words, being spiritual requires religious belief, and as such, the two concepts cannot easily be divorced. So then, why are so many insistent on claiming no religious beliefs, yet still cling to a non-material, spiritual interpretation of the self? The reason, King argues in the twelfth and final essay of the book, is because we are wired at our deepest levels to seek proof that we are more than our physical bodies. In this essay, King attempts to analyze this craving in terms of Jungian psychology. Jung conceived of the idea that, inside all human souls, there exist certain primordial images called archetypes, and these archetypes unconsciously influence our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Quote, archetypes are broad, universal patterns that manifest similarly in all humans everywhere. They're innate, which means that, While you will learn after your birth the forms in which your particular culture expresses archetypal imagery in religion, ritual, drama, art, stories, etc., you're born already possessing the capacity to recognize those expressions because the archetypes, in their raw, natural form, 
are already a part of you. For example, we have masculine archetypes like the father, the king, the warrior, and the hero, and feminine archetypes like the mother, the queen, the maiden, or the high priestess. These form the basis of our conception of reality and as such emerge as reoccurring images within our art and myth. What is important to note, though, is that all archetypes exist inside all people, meaning the soul, to young, is inherently androgynous. And it is by exposure to life within our material reality that the soul is metaphorically squeezed and forced to present only certain elements of itself. Imagine the soul as a water balloon, filled with all the archetypes. Upon leaving the womb, one of the first judgments made of us is the shape of our genitalia. Based off this one observation, our parents, institutions, and society at large form certain expectations of how we will behave and what our role will be in the larger community via a process of lifelong socialization. In our metaphor, this is the equivalent of someone squeezing that water balloon, forcing half the archetypes out of the balloon and into the world, while the other half remain hidden inside. Quote, If you are socialized as a girl, the feminine archetypes will be drawn to the front and center position. You'll be encouraged to forget the masculine archetypes even exist for you. You'll be taught to recognize their expressions in the outside world, fathers, kings, warriors, etc., but not in yourself. You can't be those things because you're a girl, society tells you. A process which, in effect, molds us to follow one or more of a limited list of the archetypes we contain, while the others are relegated to the unconscious, where, according to Jung, they constellate together to form an opposite-sex version of yourself, called an anima or animus, which, in a way, forms our own archetypal vision of our ideal other half. Quote, You'll project your anima or animus onto the real people you date, making them appear perfect and magical, made for you in every way, for a while. Adding another level of complexity to this view of the soul, King then introduces us to Jung's concept of the shadow, which is in effect another such inner self, this one constructed of the pieces of the self which our society finds unacceptable. Just as King suggested earlier in the book, to Jung, there was a fundamental difference between your soul, the essential part of you that existed before birth, and the personality, which is an expression of that self, but shaped and hemmed in by our environment. The personality is akin to the mask that is forged, half by yourself and half by others, through your unique life experiences. Quote, all the parts of your essential self that your unique socialization experience declared unacceptable got chiseled away and sent to fester in the unconscious. There, just as happened with the anima or animus, they constellated together into a personality, a pissed-off, poorly-behaved you that Jung labeled the shadow. A shadow which manifests as our monstrous self, the horror that haunts our dreams, and our own personal devil. However, as Jung argued, we must learn to remember that this monster is still, ultimately, just a part of us. It is the part of us which holds on to the elements of the self which are not acceptable in our current social environment. Regarding the larger topic of human spirituality, the message here can be summed up in one simple assertion, that there is more to us than meets the eye. If Jung is correct, each of us is the person we think we are, our anima and our shadow, and all three share between them a huge cast of archetypes used to understand and express certain foundational roles we may have throughout our life. And by understanding that, King argues, we can come to a new understanding of why we seek spirituality, because we know on some level that there's a dissonance between who we are and who we seem to be. 
Spiritual systems and religious rituals are meant to bridge that divide and allow us to reintegrate those disparate parts of the self by recognizing their existence, a process Jung called individuation. To achieve this is to become whole. Closing this argument and the book, King writes, quote, I believe spirituality is how individuals respond to awareness of the vastness inside and the primordial images energetically charge universal symbols or archetypes that reside there. Religions, in my view, while deferring in the details, universally declare that outer reality, too, is vast and filled with primordial images energetically charged universal symbols, a.k.a. gods, goddesses, angels, devils, devas, fairies, nature spirits, etc., and that, quote, human reality reflects divine reality. The line between inner space and outer space is at best arbitrary and maybe non-existent. That's the human big picture. Which brings us to our final discussion question. Whoa. So, a common topic we have discussed on this show is if paranormal phenomenon are self-generated or come from some external source. Is the poltergeist a spirit or psychic energy feeding off repressed emotions? Are they aliens or creatures from our own imagination somehow projected into the world? Now let's splash some young in there. Could his idea of the fundamental archetypes of the soul, the anima or animus, and the shadow be used as a way of explaining paranormal experiences? I think the simple answer is yes, it could. Um, assuming that they are portrayals or uh, that, uh, like Keel, thinking like Keel said with, uh, with UFOs, if the phenomenon is showing us these things as a, you know, a reaction to or because of what we think there it's it's feeding off of our thoughts that way mm-hmm. um it could be a representation of one of these archety- archetypes probably the shadow maybe maybe well but, but i think about for example let's say okay let's say in your you, what you just said is correct that uh it's the ultra terrestrials are plucking these roles from our brains and putting them out there uh, think about situations where we've had alien abductees who had sex with an alien and they encountered this beautiful, perfect other. That could be an anima or an animus. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's the, the altered... I, I think, if anything, um, in this way, I don't think it's that the ultra-terrestrials are plucking the thoughts and putting it into, into our mind. I would say that it's the ultra-terrestrials that are the shadow. And that the UFOs are just a reflection of all of that. So, our sh- so basically, paranormal phenomenon are all poltergeists. It's just that they're manifestations of our shadow lashing out in psychic space. Yes, essentially, that's what I was saying. Now, I don't want to say that I believe that. I'm just saying that, that maybe that's a way to interpret, uh, 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 like add a little bit of, uh, uh, of that in there. But I, I think you could make the argument for, for that any of this is uh, a reflection of almost any of these uh, uh, of these archetypes, and maybe it just depends on the situation, and it's just uh, our unconscious or our subconscious reacting to whatever it is and trying to. I don't want to say rationalize it because these are 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 not rational by any means, but trying to come to grips with whatever it is the issue that i come in i i come into contact with here is 
for those people that uh, has seemed to have everything going for them in life, okay, and then their life is ruined by having one of these experiences, why? What's the reasoning there? You know, why, you know, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense unless there's like something in your unconscious that you uh, suppressed so deeply that uh, it needed to lash out or, or maybe it's from a past life and this is its way of, uh, uh, of, of showing itself. I, I don't know. Ultimately, fuck, I have no idea. Um, but I, I, I guess the, the problem that I, I have with thinking that all of this is a projection of our own imagination in its entirety is that it does the, the part that doesn't make sense to me is that if it was a projection of our own imagination wouldn't we have a more logical explanation to what these things are like if why i mean like i i get the idea of like they're showing like the things show to us in a way that our brains our our minds can can like can understand like mm-hmm. why they saw floating ships at one point versus why we see UFOs now mm-hmm. though we there are there's evidence to show that we saw saucers long before yeah uh the 1940 or 1947 seeing as we've seen saucers on cave walls and stuff like that um but nonetheless uh, I, I guess if that's true, then maybe, but it also, what it doesn't explain to me is what the fuck it is. Like, why? Like, why are we, pro- what is the point, uh, I, I guess, what is the point of us, of these projections? What is it trying to tell us? Like, what are we, to, or rather, what are we trying to tell ourselves with this? And that's assuming that there isn't some other entity behind it. And I guess that's where I, I, I think, that's where I, I think it's not, it doesn't jive with every aspect of the phenomenon. Yeah. Because I don't think where I'm at right now, I guess, I don't think that aliens, UFOs, and cryptids are projections of, of, our, of ourselves. I think that there's something separate from us. I think, if anything, those two, aliens and cryptids, are more closely related to each other than to us and that they're separate entities, maybe living in alternate universes, parallel universes, maybe on another planet, maybe a little bit of both, maybe all of the above. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But I do think that in other aspects of the phenomenon, poltergeists, ghosts, uh, spirits like that, I think we could make a better argument for this because that makes a little bit more sense to me. I could see my interactions with a ghost um, being more of a projection of one of these archetypes, if it's, you know, you know, um, actually with, you know, kind of tangenting off to the side, the whole shadow thing made me think a lot of the shadow thought forms from spiritual alchemy. I mean, it's very similar concept there. It's the uh, negative side of you, I guess. Right. The, the stuff that you have to overcome, so to speak, uh, lashing out against you. So that makes a lot of sense to me uh, in, in that sense. Um, and maybe, maybe that's what ghosts are. Maybe that's what some of these spirits are is projections, maybe not of just us, but of other people that have lingered. 
and become an egregore or something like that. Um, possible, I, I suppose. I don't, but I guess ultimately, I, I don't think that everything is coming from us. Yeah, okay. As, as, uh, as much as I, I like to talk about our own individuality as being, you know, woo, great. I also think that there are other things out there and they can also have fun and play like this. Yeah, okay. I'll buy it for a dollar. I don't have any cash. Can I Venmo? I'd be paying you. Why would you Venmo? Oh, I just assumed I was paying. What? Why? You know what? You should. Now you have to pay me. No. No one's paying anyone. <laughs> Unless it's rent. Undermining me in front of the podcast. <laughs> Jay, what do you think? Yeah. At least large swaths of it. Um... I do think that uh, Poltergeist could absolutely just be a manifestation of the shadow self. I, the, especially in like the Alma Fielding case, I'm almost positive that's just what that was. I think Alma was like, I'm going to board my trauma up in a cupboard. And after a while, the trauma was like, what if I make noise? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, as, and as for the, the archetypes that are contained within the anima slash animus, uh kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about religions creating masks for for the power of the universe to step inside and perform certain social cultural tasks for them then absolutely i feel like i feel like the assertions about the anima slash animus are just a continuation of that uh of they basically that those archetypes are the mask that perhaps the world can step into uh they are the masks through which we interpret our deities our entities our stories or ourselves so well not not explaining the phenomenon or maybe not necessarily being its origin at, at the very least it's it's a help th- it's a helpful lens through which to interpret what's happening around us mm-hmm. in terms of paranormality I, I don't i don't think it explains all of it um and uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think it explains all of it, but I think I think the shadow self uh, lashing out because it's been suppressed is is pretty on par with what I've personally concluded poltergeists are. <laughs> that and that's fair, though. You did uh, hit on something there that got my mind going. You know, we we talked earlier about that whole idea of we you know we project a form on the divine and it takes that form to talk to us. Uh. In a very similar way, what if, you know, like Rory was saying, these are they are outside entities, paranormal entities, they exist. Maybe not poltergeists, maybe those are psychic energy, maybe some of them are real uh, conscious entities separate from the self. But as we know, we are constructing reality all the time. And the in this metaphor, I mean, if Jung is correct, the archetypes, the shadow, the animus, that's sort of the pieces we have to construct a lot of our understanding of the world. So what if our, the archetypes are not, you know, man, they don't manifest as paranormal entities, but it's like paranormal entities that encounter us. That's the costume trunk. That's what we overlay over them. And we think about, uh, for example, in uh, Whitley Strieber's work, we had aliens taking on Phoenix heads and speaking in archetypal imagery what if all of that is plucked straight from our brains? They are taking these archetypes that are fundamental to our understanding of the world 
and uh, either changing themselves to present as that, or we are simply overlaying something we cannot comprehend with, with something that we like that we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I had a similar thought to that. I think when we were reading one of uh, Whitley Strieber's books, something like what you were saying, like that, or maybe it was something that he said that we are just what we see isn't even what they actually look like. It's just what our brain can comprehend almost. Yeah. Well, and, and then thinking about ghosts, for example, uh, you know, it's one thing that's, that's always kind of bothered me about ghost stories, but I think this would be one potential way to explain it is that, uh, is the existence of archetypes in ghosts. What I mean by that is the woman in white, you know, the, 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 uh, the man in the top hat, like there's these certain kinds of ghosts which seem to just spring up again and again and again uh, throughout the world. So, for example, the woman in white, what if that is one of our internal archetypes? Like on some level, not mm. with our eyes, not with our, our meat senses, we know there's a ghost there. We can sense them on some part of our brain that's talking to us right now. We can't see it. We may not be able to see who it really is, but we can understand it is a woman who was murdered. Now, now your brain arc, you know, overlays the archetype of the woman in white, the murder victim over that ghost. So it's not, you're not seeing their true identity. You're seeing the archetype that most closely fits the transcendent truth that's coming into that fourth concha that we talked about. It's almost like these archetypes, soul, anima, animus, shadow. Yeah. It's almost like there's two sets of them. There's one for each individual. And then there's one for the universe. It's almost like the universe has its own archetypes, and sometimes those get overlaid on things that we, and that's why it ends up becoming everybody seeing it like this. That's why we see shadow people with, you know, as crawlers or uh, the, the top hats or all of these other types that we see is because maybe that's just what, the universe's archetype is for these things. Yeah, it's more that this thing exists and it is this flavor of personality or consciousness. And so to our eyes, everything that is, I don't know, a malicious trickster to us looks like a crawler. Yeah. You know, it it is a way of interpreting these things that we cannot perceive with our meat senses. It's very interesting. Yeah. I, I, I like that a lot, actually. I I just like the word meat senses. I <laughs> uh, I I but yeah, no, I, that was largely my thought on it. Um again, we come back to could be big Shit. if true. Big if true. Um I but I mean that said, I think Young is a fascinating figure. Uh I actually again, I have a book about him by Gary Lockman that's been on lock in my Amazon wish list for a while that is basically a biography of him from the point of view of the mystical stuff he did. Oh, and well, I'm uh, interested, very, and, very interested, and that's definitely going to be coming up at some point on this show. As soon as uh, we get the internal fortitude necessary to f- to go through another Lockman book, because they are tomes. Yeah, Mr. Yeah, Lockman, give me a break first, though. Mr. Lockman, you defeated me so thoroughly the last time around. All right, well, I I, I like this conversation, but I think I think we've beaten it to death. Do we yeah. have anything else that we want to add? My cup I- is empty. Yeah, I think I, I think I'm uh, I think I'm done. Okay, with that at least. So you know what that means about the author, right?
I almost missed that, actually. Yeah. yeah, I saw that. I saw it in your eyes. Well, I mean, part of that is because I have very little this time, uh, and that's because there's not much out there online about the life of King. Uh, however, we do know that he writes under a huge amount of pen names and has far more books under his belt than it may seem at first glance. Um, in fact, now that we think about it, I don't really know if his real name is even Jack. Yep, not a clue. So this may not be his real name. Uh, but under the King name, he has 11 books exploring philosophical and spiritual topics, as well as some poetry and fiction. Uh, he blames a spiritual experience in 1988 for his 30 year long fascination with these topics, during which he received a cosmic data download, which revealed to him elements of human spirituality he had not considered. Uh, this event is pretty cool, and it's detailed in a lengthy blog post on his website, which we'll leave in the notes for the show. Uh, he also used to frequently write for Medium.com, where he was followed by over 13,000 people. And that is quite literally all I could find. You forgot one really important thing. Yeah. He was on Noctipigan Podcast, episode 19. Oh, is that the number? Yeah, 19. And he's coming on again for an episode of Midnight Chats. We're going to have Jack back on. I'm super excited to talk to him. He's a real nice guy and ridiculously smart. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm pumped to get to talk to Jack again, for yeah. real. No, no, he's a great guy. I, I love Jack. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to have a great time with him then. Uh, and then, uh, now I think we're ready. I think I think we are. are. Are we ready? Yeah. For? Housekeeping. 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 So if you liked what you heard, give us a follow on whatever streaming service you're listening to us on. And if it's Apple or Spotify. Please leave us a five-star review. Or just if it lets you rate. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Yeah, any of those. Because it really does help us. I know we say it every every time, but it really actually does help us. And if you have any feedback, book recommendation, you just want to yell, you can do that. Shoot us an email, noctivicanpodcast at gmail.com. And then finally, our social medias. You can follow us on Twitter, at noctivicanpod, or individually, I am at mixroywicks. I am at bearish terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social media, including a Instagram, Noctivigant underscore podcast, a Reddit account, Noctivigant podcast, a Tumblr, Noctivigant podcast. I think that's it, actually. Did you say Instagram? I did. Yeah, I started with Instagram. Well, after Twitter. We got to get a MySpace like all the cool kids. What? No. And if you want, you can follow me on TikTok uh, at Mixroywix. Um... But I think that's, I think that'll do it. I'm yeah. not giving you people my AO3. <laughs> oh, what's coming up next week or in two weeks? In two weeks, we have uh, one. We, in two weeks, we are returning back to the land of ghosts as uh, Jay is going to be leading us through One Bed Over, A Hospital Haunting by Alex Matsuo. Yes. Yeah. At last, we return to my home planet. Yeah. And Alex is super cool. Uh, we are mutuals on Twitter, so I'm excited to uh, dive into her book and uh, then get to talk to her too, I'm sure. I'm like 100 pages into it right now and it is deeply messing with me. Yeah? Well, the the first giant chunk of the book is about a near-fatal car accident. Oh, geez, yeah. And, oh. and so many of the scenes sound like they were ripped straight out of my memories. Oh, oh no. Wow. And uh, so I know they're authentic because I remember going through something very similar. But like... Uh, it is the first time in a long time. Well, it's, like, it's the first time I've read a book for this show that has made me break out in cold sweats. Oh wow! So am I'm I, sorry did, I did this to you. It, no, it's fine. I, I'm glad I'm reading it. I did this to us. You just chose to lead the book or lead the episode. Oh yeah, it, it, we said the word ghost, and Jay just grabbed it like some horrible haunted goblin. 
Have you ever, did you watch the show, A Haunted Hospital? Because she was on that. I did. With this story that we're reading about. Uh, I think I did. I mean, I'm sure you did. It's probably just been years or whatever. You've ingested so much paranormal trash television at 3 a.m. I'm not surprised it's all blended together. I can't even watch a haunting anymore because I'm just seeing the ways that their ghost science is all deeply flawed. (laughs) Your ghost Ghost science science. is wrong. Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Let's get out of here. Lead us out of here, Nick. All right. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on those midnight roads. Don't get lost. Or, no, nah, you know what? Just don't get lost. God damn it, you're going to make me do it now? Follow the trails. Go! Follow the trails. Don't listen to them. They don't want you to have fun. No, Run I... off into the dark. Chase the red eyes. I... If you if you ever get a feeling like something's following you and you feel the urge to turn around, do it. It can't go wrong. Do you want that to just be your post credit? No. <laughs> <laughs>